Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, the beauty of it, the majesty of it, the power of it, spanning across generation and centuries, spanning across millennia, stacking prophecy upon prophecy to let us know who you are and what you've done, to let us know that you would not leave us here in the dark, but you would come and you would come as light, illuminating our souls to your beauty and your power and your majesty and your perfection. I pray, Lord, that as we read your word, as we look at your word, you would show us the beauty of it, Lord. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A couple days ago, I was listening to some radio hosts on a conservative talk radio program. I think they were a mixed group, a Christian, uh, a couple of Jews, and an atheist as well. And they were, they were coming to a basic consensus about what, Christ, what Christmas was all about. And they said that no matter, this is what, what Christmas is really all about, is that no matter what you believe, no matter who you are, Christmas is a time when we can all come together and affirm that love will overcome and that we will come together and build a better world. That if we just try hard enough, we, in our power, with the light within us, will be able to end hunger and poverty and injustice and war. If we just try hard enough, we'll be able to make these things happen. That's the general consensus of this group to the meaning of Christmas. 
Some people trust in different things in the world, things of the earth in order to, to, to see this hope. Some people trust in politics. If we could just put together the right social programs, we would ease suffering and create a utopia. Some people look to the economy. If we could just free up the flow of money to people, people would be more prosperous and we would create a perfect world. And everyone, everyone looks to technology. Technology somehow is going to save us. And it's a safe bet. It's safe to believe or to trust in technology living in California that technology might save us. But it's hard to believe that technology will save us if you live someplace like Aleppo, Syria. It's hard to believe that technology will save you when that same technology is raining death upon your head and upon the heads of your children and your family. So we in the West, we say, don't worry about Aleppo. Don't, don't look at that. Look, look, we have iPhones. And this is going to solve our problem. Someday, some way, we'll be smart enough to figure it out. The Middle East, like the rest of the world, has always been at war. And when Isaiah wrote this passage, when he wrote this prophecy 2,800 years ago, the northern regions of Israel, the lands of, of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, which would later become known as the land of Galilee, the great cities of the north in Israel had just been flattened by the brutality of the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, and his unstoppable and unbreakable Assyrian army. And they were in, in deep despair and woe. Then is now the inhabitants of Israel were looking to themselves, looking to their own power. How can we fix this? What can we do to make this better? And they were looking, as Isaiah says, to things to the earth. They didn't have technology. They didn't have iPhones, but they had their own sources. They had mediums. They had necromancy, Isaiah says in the chapter preceding this. And as they looked to these things, as they looked to themselves and their own power, as they looked to the earth, Isaiah says, But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah says that as they look to the earth, as they look to these things in vain, that finally the end came, the cities fell, the people were slaughtered, they were taken away into exile, and everybody sat in in anguish and despair and wondered, is this how it's always going to be? Is this suffering and war and disease and famine and poverty ever, ever going to end? Will we walk in the shadow of death forever? And let's be honest, we've had some time to figure these things out. Tens of thousands of years, and yet Aleppo still stands in ruins. But right here in this passage, right here in the middle of this brutal chronicle of war and destruction, God takes a minute to look us in the eye through the prophet Isaiah and say, No, no, 
It will not always be like this. It will not always be this way. In fact, you should be rejoicing. You should be rejoicing as people who just brought in the first harvest after a famine. That's rejoicing. You should be rejoicing as people who have just brought in the spoils of war after a miraculous being, being saved from brutal, prolonged siege warfare. And what is it that will cause such rejoicing? The first key to understanding what Isaiah is talking about here is to understand what happened on the day of Midian in verse 4. This isn't the first time that Israel has faced an overwhelming enemy. It's not the first time they've faced someone like Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians. 500 years earlier, another threat from, from the Midians had come and surrounded Israel as well. 135,000 Midian soldiers. And Israel got everybody together and they had 32,000. They were outnumbered by more more than four to one. And how did God command them? What was God's instruction to them as they faced this unbeatable foe? He told Gideon, who is the commander of the forces, he says, I want you to send everybody home except for 300 guys. And what were the qualifications of those 300 warriors of Israel? Were they the brightest? Were they the most skillful? Did they have the most weaponry? Did they have the strongest armor? Doesn't say anything about that. All it says is that they were the ones who lapped the water like dogs when they leaned down to drink. That's not encouraging. There's nothing about these men that would give us the impression that these are the special forces of Israel. What was God trying to teach them? What was God trying to teach them through this? Same thing Isaiah is trying to teach Israel right now. Same thing he's trying to teach us. Same thing the Bible is always trying to teach us. And that is that it's true. Our enemies are too strong. Our enemies are overpowering us. We cannot win. We will not come together and make world peace through our iPhone 7s. Because the enemy's not out there, the enemy's inside of us. The real enemy is the power of sin. And the power of sin is too much for us to overcome. Left on our own, we can have pep rallies all day long. We can talk about how Christmas is the time when we're really going to pull it together this year and make a difference but we won't, and we never will. Left on our own, we would be without hope. But in this passage, God promises something to us. He promises that he is able to overcome for us, that he is able to break the yoke and the rod of the oppressor, not the Syrians, not the Assyrians, not the Midians, but sin and death, the true oppressor of mankind. He is able to swallow up the horror of war in his consuming fire. 
And how is he going to overcome the power of war and sin and death and famine and poverty? How does he plan on doing that? Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So there's the plan. A baby against Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians. A little boy, a child, against 135,000 Midianite war-hardened soldiers. A baby against the overwhelming power and destructive force of human sin and the death and destruction that it leaves in its wake. But praise God, this isn't just any baby. This isn't a human baby. This is not an angel incarnate. This is someone very, very special. Isaiah gives him four names. Biblically, the name represented or described who the person was. First name, Wonderful Counselor. This is wonder in the sense of supernatural power. The same word wonder here is used by the psalmist in Psalm 78 to recount the deeds of the Exodus. Just as God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt, God will deliver his people from the oppression of sin and death through this child in a brand new Exodus. And Counselor brings to mind the idea of wisdom. This child will be the perfection of incarnate wisdom so that he will reign in perfect glory and justice forever. Mighty God. The Hebrew term here is El Gibor. El meaning God, Gibor, form of Gibarim. Those of you from New Life know that word. It means mighty man. It means hero, champion. And so this has the term Isaiah. Isaiah always, always uses the term El for God Almighty and no one else. And so this term has the sense of being divine hero or divine champion. Wouldn't be too far off of the meaning. This child will be the incarnate deity come to rescue us as our hero and as our champion, just as David did against Goliath and against the Philistines. He rescued his people and saved them as their hero and champion. Everlasting Father. This is Father in the sense of compassionate care and protection over his people. In the ancient Near East, kings often took upon themselves the title of Father over their people in the same way they took on the title Shepherd. It was a term of endearment, a term of protection, a term of compassion and love. And Isaiah is tipping us off that this is the same child who would one day be called the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Prince of Peace, which is Prince of Shalom. Shalom in Hebrew is a much bigger idea than our understanding of peace. It includes the ideas of wholeness and wellness and completeness and healing all together. It's a comprehensive statement or a a blessing a promise of restoration, of complete healing. And so this child is going to be the one who comes to restore the world 
and to make it what we know it should be but never is. The astonishing promise being made here, the crazy promise, is that through this child, God is going to heal us at the deepest, deepest levels. In the Exodus, God delivered his people from bondage, but slavery continued because the causes of slavery remained. On the day of Midian, God defeated 135,000 Midianite soldiers as 300 remaining dog-lapping Israelites looked on, but war continued because the causes of war continued to exist. It was a sign. These things were signs, but they weren't ultimately the solution. They pointed forward to what God was going to do in layer after layer after layer of prophecy as God foretold the future. The astonishing promise being made here is not that God will end war, but that he will end the cause of war. The promise being made here is not that God will end poverty, but that God will end the root cause of poverty. The astonishing promise is that God will put an end to sin. And with the end of sin comes the end of death and the end of disease and the end of famine and the end of war. And the best thing is it's a forever promise. It doesn't come and go. It's a promise of eternal Eternal quality life shared with our Creator forever. How will this all happen? How is this little child going to do this? The last question. In the early church, in the very early church, in very early art depicting the nativity, The Christ child is shown wrapped in swaddling clothes that resemble grave clothes. And he's on a stone table that resembles the altar of sacrifice to remind us in no uncertain terms that the purpose of this child coming, the reason why he took on flesh, this child was literally born to die. The incarnation and the crucifixion are inexorably linked together. The way that God was going to cure sin of the world was by taking sin upon himself. And then he was going to suffer the punishment that we deserve for looking at pictures of Aleppo on our iPhone 7s and other sins of callousness and pride and brutal selfishness towards each other. that contribute to the suffering of the world in big ways and small ways. And then having taken that sin upon himself by clearing it away, by producing the justice that the universe demands, that the holiness of God demands, he was able to then turn to us in peace, in shalom peace and bring healing and wholeness and wellness and completeness to our weary souls. That is what Christmas is all about. That is what God did by incarnating 
and becoming a little baby. There's a little problem, though. Tim Keller gives a great illustration about the problem of pride, human pride in the economy of salvation. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that salvation, that everything that God is offering here in this passage and throughout the Bible is a free gift. Christ has completed the work of our salvation for us and everything he did, and that salvation is offered to us freely without charge. You don't have to do anything to take it. But the problem is some gifts are hard to take, aren't they? Imagine you wake up tomorrow morning and your husband gives you a book it's a, you unwrap the present, it's a self-help book, and it's called, it's called How to Stop Being a Selfish, Prideful Jerk. Or you give a book to your wife, she opens it up, or a member of your family, another self-help book, How to Stop Being Resentful and Punishing Everyone in Your Family. Would you be angry at these gifts? You might be. It might hit you in the pride. You might say, whoa, what are you trying to say? But what if the truth was you really were kind of a selfish, prideful jerk? And what if the truth was we really were kind of resentful and punished our whole family because of it? That book, if it was able to help you, if it was able to heal you, would be exactly what you needed The only requirement for taking it and saying thank you is that you say, yeah, that's me. I need that. I I need help with that. And that's what the gospel says. The gospel says that we're all messed up. The gospel says no matter how much technology you have, you'll never be able to overcome your selfish pride. You'll never be able to overcome the anger that wells up inside of you out of nowhere. You'll never be able to overcome the things that hold, that we have in the corruption of our hearts that hold us away from God or that holds God away from us. The bad news is that heaven requires absolute perfection, absolute moral perfection, and nobody has it. No one can do it. But the good news is that Jesus came as a baby and incarnated into our world to put an end to the root cause of all of those things and to cure us of our sins and bring us back into fellowship. Reconcile us with the God of the universe. So for those of us who do know Jesus, Why does God call us to rejoice on Christmas Day as those who have just been rescued from famine and from war? And the answer is, because he has. But even more than that, he's rescued us from the world that produces those things. He's rescued us from our own evil hearts that contribute to them. And he promises by the power of his spirit to bring us out of this world and into the next where none of those things will be, where we will have peace and joy and glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Amen? Amen. Lord, as we approach your table, 
We pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord. Every one of us is bought into some silly idea of what Christmas is all about. And there are many things that are good and beautiful about Christmas. The giving of gifts, the loving of one another, the family, the coming together, the desire to do good and to love one another, the desire to seek out the lost and to help the poor. We pray that you would strengthen us to do those things, Lord. But we pray that you would never let us be so foolish as to think that that is the way of our salvation, Lord. We pray that that would be our grateful response to it, but that we would recognize that the incarnation, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, means that you have come for us and that you have brought us your salvation. that you have made peace by the blood of your cross. Lord, help us to love you as we ought. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.